Hello, and welcome to Fortune's Wheelhouse, a podcast about esoterics and the tarot. I'm Susie Chang, and my co-host is Mel Moline. We're going on a journey through the symbolic imagery of each of the 78 tarot cards. If you use a Rider-Waite-Smith deck, or a Thoth deck, or Mel's own Tabula Mundi deck, you've come to the right place. We love making this podcast, and we hope you love listening to it. But you should also know that Fortune's Wheelhouse is more than the sound of our voices. We have a home on the web at www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. Come and visit us there so you can experience the other part of this conversation, where we provide hundreds of written articles and explanations for even the most obscure concepts you'll hear on the show. If you sign up to be our patron at even the $1 level, you'll instantly gain access to all that information, which can be found nowhere else. And if you become a patron at the $3 level or higher, you'll get a chance to win our giveaways, like our awesome listener, Abe, who just won last week's giveaway. Congratulations, Abe. This week, we're talking about the King of Cups, or the Knight of Cups, if you're thothy. In our discussion, we talk about his chivalrous nature and his quest for the Holy Grail. So we thought we'd offer you our own sacred vessel, the Fortune's Wheelhouse coffee mug. Win our drawing, and every morning, Fortune's Wheelhouse will accompany you and your beverage of choice on your own sacred missions, whether that's saving the world, battling demons, or simply conquering your inbox. If you'd like to check out that mug, and assorted other cool Fortune's Wheelhouse items, you can do that at our Redbubble store, www.redbubble.com slash people slash wheelhouse93 slash shop. As always, you can sign up for the drawing at our site, www.patreon.com slash Fortune's Wheelhouse. In the meantime, we've got something to ask you. If you're loving Fortune's Wheelhouse and the fantastically geeky world of tarot we bring you each week, would you leave us a review on iTunes? You can write a couple sentences about why you dig this podcast, or you can just drop us five stars. We love that too. Leaving a review is something free you can do, which really helps us and also helps other people find the show. Being a practitioner of the esoteric arts can be a lonely business, so help us find the others and build our community. If you're on Facebook, you can also connect with other listeners at Fortune's Wheelhouse Academy, which is a page moderated by astral superheroes Darren, Naya, and Maria. Even now, over 200 listeners are sharing their love of esoteric tarot and even planning a Fortune's Wheelhouse meetup for the fall. You could be one of them. And now, here's this week's episode. Okay, welcome to the court cards of the Cups suit. This is our first time back in courts in several weeks. We did a big overview of the courts way back when we did the King slash Knight of Wands. So if you would like a complete introduction to how the court cards work, overview of the Golden Dawn correspondences for the court cards, uh, you can go back to that episode, which is episode 32 King or Knight of Wands, and you can see a complete rundown of all of that material. 
So as we did with the wand suit, we're going to go from king or knight to queen to knight or prince to page or princess in that order. And then we'll move on to swords. And we'll talk a little bit again about the confusion or overlap between the knight and king prince male court correspondences since that always comes up with every one of these cards. So uh, so if you're confused about that, don't worry about it. Everybody is. Join the club. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So starting with the King of Cups in Rider-Waite-Smith or the Knight of Cups in Tabula Mundi and Thoth, his hermetic title, well, he has several, right? So we've got the Lord of the Waves and the Waters, uh, the King of the Hosts of the Sea, and the King of Undines and of Nymphs. I actually looked up the difference between undines and nymphs. Where was I? I was reading something the other day. There, there, there actually are differences between these categories of, I guess you'd call them water elementals. Um, you know, naiads, naiads were of the waters. They were immortal, but then there were the ones that were, what were they called? Dryads? Or, they were of the trees. And they, Dryads are of the trees, their, yeah. their mortality was attached to a tree. So right. if the tree was cut down, that's why it was such a big crime to cut down a tree because you were taking right. the life of that that being. Right. But yeah, I'm, I can't remember where I was reading that, but there actually are these different classifications of the, the water spirits. Yeah. I mean, the, the word undine has to do with the Latin onda, which is wave, so like undulating. It may be that mm -hmm. they're associated with the sea. Well, fresh water may be the... Uh, I was hoping that that would be the case. Something like that. But it turns out that there are like the river nymphs and sea nymphs and... Which are know, the, the lake nymphs. naiads, I think, are the, ri yeah. the river nymphs. So that that seems more of a freshwater connotation than the undines. It does the, seem the, to. With the sea. It does seem to. And uh, the thing about the Golden Dawn names is that they kind of like try to include everything possible in the most grandiose sounding way. So, I mean, even if there is overlap, that wouldn't have bothered you gotta them You've got to be careful and pay proper <laughs> tribute, I think. Yeah, you don't want to leave anyone out. That's a problem. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and something I've also heard about these water elementals is that they're immortal, but have no soul. I don't know whether that's true of the other elementals, but there's a lot of Christian mythology about these water elementals, like the Little Mermaid, for example, and the idea that, you know, uh, by marrying into a mortal family, you can gain a soul kind of a thing. But it's just so interesting that that's associated with this suit, because it is a suit that's so much about the soul and the spirit and the human relationship yeah, with that. That's really interesting, because um, one of the things I was reading recently that was attributed to Paul Foster Case is that he associated the kings or knights with the spirit, the queens with the soul, the knight with the ego, or the prince knight with the ego, and the princess page with the body. Ooh, and that kind of made sense. Spirit, So spirit, soul, ego, body yeah. in, in descending order. For sure. And of course, the queens being the soul the soul are the of most the soul. watery of water. You know, right. when, we get, when we get to the queen episode, she's water of water. That's about as cups as you're going to get. Exactly. So here we are. That's a good segue into the elemental associations for this card. Um, he is fire of water. And just a reminder, since we haven't done courts in a while, that um, when we say the fiery part of water, we don't mean necessarily that watery has a physically fiery part, but 
maybe a way to think of it is like a fiery behavior or a fiery um aspect yeah like active water right uh, spring gushing springs mm-hmm. pouring rain um, yeah. flowing rivers the active motion of water it's motion and it's you know i think crowley says in his description of this card something about the swift passionate attack of rain and springs so so yeah. we're not talking about standing water yeah. you know he's talking about water that's uh, swift and violent but not long lasting right and that's key for this so we want to think of fire as being something that's quick and ephemeral and very active. It's not stagnant mm-hmm. water here. Right. For the most part. Right. Whereas, you know, if you compare this to the Queen of Wands, the uh, water of fire, we talk about her as having watery qualities within fire, though not fire itself has no watery qualities. Right. So she has that ability to spread from one thing to another to create connections the way fire can catch. So that's, that's the way to think of this, these elemental combinations. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. So the queen of wands would be more of, you could call it the form of force. Yeah. Whereas this would be more the force of form. Yeah. You know, it's like I like that a lot. The other yeah. way to look at it. Yeah, it's really interesting to compare these sort of complementary courts and see how they have a relationship. Yeah. yeah. Um, Snuffin's book has an interesting little table somewhere in it that talks about the four court cards of this suit. And it, he said, the knights were of the sea, the queens were of a pool, the princes were of a lake, and the princesses were a sea with spray. Huh. And I thought that was kind of interesting because so if you think of, you know, the night as the sea, this kind of boundlessness where the queen as a pool mm-hmm. that's Contains more still it. and reflective and yeah, that's true. You know, but when you think about like the ways that fire and water can interact, you know, the play yeah. of the light on the water, the rainbow, the way all of that has this um, glittering, sparkling quality, but it's not long-lasting. That's what we associate um, with this card. And we'll also be talking about, you know, lots of rainbows and peacocks. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And hot springs. And hot springs. Fire of water. That's another manifestation of fire and yeah. water. Yeah. Anything steamy. Yeah. So there's, you know, the steaminess of the Queen of Wands, and there's the steaminess of the um, Knight or King of Cups, which are interesting to think about. I also think that there's something about this quality of light and water interplaying that has to do with the ability to project onto this character. Like when I was in Singapore, they had this like super high tech uh, waterfront display that was basically like fountains of sheets of water being sprayed up into a harbor and then lights projected against them. So you were actually seeing a movie projected onto water. And to me, that has a little bit of the quality of this, the idea that this man, this court card, has qualities that people project onto him. You know, he has this figure Mm. of like, uh, you know, the charismatic leader, but his charisma is borrowed from what people project onto him to some degree. And that's something that that I get from it. Almost reminds me of those studies where the spoken word was introduced to water to see the qualities that the the water could be imbued with. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Can't remember the scientist's name, but it was really interesting. That's cool. So let's see. He is associated 
with, I mean, primarily Pisces, the first two decans of Pisces, but he also has the final decan of Aquarius, like 12 of the 16 court cards, not the page princesses, but like all of the rest of them, they he has these three decans that overlap two signs. Right. So primarily he functions as a Pisces, but mm-hmm. with what's called the shadow decan, which we talk about in the overview, shows a quality that he has, but perhaps is expressed when he's less comfortable. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this last night, and I was wondering if there's sort of like a corollary to, you know, in astrology to the moon rising and sun sign, like the shadow decan might be the private, the moon sign, the thing that nobody sees, but which motivates you, you know, in a way. Or that comes out when you're under stress and pressure that you normally can have under more under control. Whereas the, uh, the primary two decans might be the face that you show to the world. Yeah. 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 Well, as far as Pisces goes, we're going to be seeing a lot of oceanic fishy symbolism when we get to the actual cards. I like, in relation to this card especially, the motto for Pisces, which is, I believe. Yeah. And you can kind of see that in these figures. Yes. I think that there's a real connection, you know, that connection between the Aquarian idealism and then the kind of faith that that turns into and the um, connection between people, the movements that inspires, that has to do with this card. And Pisces, as the final sign of the zodiac, is also a sign that's about transcendence. The dissolving of boundaries. Yeah. Right. Yeah, about the um, fundamental connections of humanity and the idea that we're basically all one organism. So so that uh, final final decan of Aquarius going into first two decans of Pisces. The associated majors are therefore the star and the moon. So that's something we're going to look for, qualities we're going to look for in this card. Um, the ability to create hope and inspire, but also the ability to create like new realities. And to explore the subconscious yeah you know the the sign has a lot to do with exploring themes of the subconscious realm so the dates of aquarius to pisces that's february 9ish to march 10th ish which is not particularly significant in terms of the relationship of the day to the night exactly or it's not it doesn't have a cross quarter holiday in it for us it's just that sort of waiting for spring, endlessly waiting for spring. Right. <laughs> so the corresponding minors, the titles for them would be futility, indolence or abandoned success, and happiness or material happiness. So yeah, I mean, if you think about that, it is a story about spiritual journeys that's associated with this card. You know, with the eight and nine of cups, there's always that search for where is true happiness. I think it's interesting, too, to look at the planetary rulers of those decans because you've got Saturn with the eight of cups indolence and you've got Jupiter with the nine of cups happiness. So there's a real polarity. um, And I've seen those cards described as soul loss for the indolence card and soul enrichment for the happiness card. So there's, you know, those Mm -hmm. two opposite kind of 
polls going on. Whereas then with the Seven of Swords futility ruled by the moon as his shadow decan, it shows a passivity and a loss of will, that concept of futility. You know, the moon's kind of vacillation and not committing. And as a knight, the concept of will is very important. And so that's his weakness when he loses his will to go on and becomes too passive. He's not going to ultimately get that nine of cups mm-hmm. happiness result that, yeah. he's, that he seeks. I think that, so the thing about the moon is that, you know, ruling that final decan of Aquarius, the seven of swords, is that it has that doubleness about it, that quality of the impulses warring with each other. The, you know, I call that the card of the divided mind. And you know, the moon confers glamour, it can confer an appearance, but that appearance, you know, when you mistake that for the truth can really lead people astray. And I think that that's something that, you know, if you look at the writer Wade Smith, uh, Seven of Swords, you see a person who has a couple of different agendas going on and is possibly losing his way. You know, that's one expression of futility, the idea that when you're not fully integrated into yourself, when you're when you're split in your mind, uh, that it's possible to get lost. And that may even lead to that journey of the Eight of Cups, uh, the spiritual loss journey, and the spiritual regaining journey of the Nine of Cups. Yeah, it's almost like this guy is on a quest and, you know, a quest for that holy grail of happiness, the cause of happiness but he can lose heart along the way, apparently. Right. And it becomes his mission to find that. And I think as the, you know, as the king or knight of cups, he becomes an avatar for other people to find their own journeys in him. Yeah. So Sephira, so tree of life, he's associated with Chokmah in Briha. So Chokmah, we translate usually as wisdom. This is not one of his decans. It's actually a decan of the queen of cups, but Mm -hmm. it's also interesting to look at the minor cards for the Sephira. So for the knight, you'd be looking at the two of cups, love. Right. And Mm -hmm. for, you know, for the queen, then you'd be looking at the three, Mm -hmm. which actually is one of her decans, and for the prince, Mm -hmm. the six, and Mm -hmm. the uh, princess, the ten. So if we, looking especially at the two of cups in relation to this card, the idea of love It reminds me of, well, we have the four powers of the Sphinx related to the four divine letters of the divine name. This would be the Yod of love, Mm -hmm. to dare, to Mm -hmm. love. Um, So when I think of the the Two of Cups and the concept of will, the will to love and the will to dream, because this guy is a dreamer. He is. He's a visionary. In a good way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting to think about that. The two of a given suit will always be connected with to the knight of the, the knight or king of the suit, and the three will always be connected to the queen of the suit. The three will also always be one of the queen's decans, in the same way that the six will always be one of the knight or prince's decans, as well as being associated with him in that story. And then, of course, there's the 10, which is not really part of the story at all in terms of the the page or princess not having those um, specific decans. So yeah, so 2, 3, 6, and 10, always, in case we haven't covered that specifically, uh, they are the sephirot that are associated with the four court cards. Two for the king or knight, three for the queen, six for the knight or prince, and 10 for the page or princess. 
So, yeah, and I like that idea that you are talking about, about the Two of Cups having that, you know, particular significance. Yeah, and it makes sense because the the night is the beginning of a series, just as the two is the beginning of a series, and they both have that that quality of setting forth. And it's interesting that he is uh, in the world of Bria. I think that at one point, I can't remember if it's Wade or Crowley, but somebody describes him as creative intelligence. And, you know, Bria, we think of as the world of creation. Yeah, I see this guy as a creative impulse. Mm-hmm. The, the, the creative part from water and the impulse from the, the fact that he's a knight. Mm-hmm. That first force kind of energy. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, creation is one of those really hard to pin down words because it means so many different things. Because I think it means, you know, yes, it can mean the creative arts and creativity in a very narrow sense. Um, and sometimes I think of this guy as a patron of the arts. But it can also mean, um, you know, the the act of creation, the tree of life, the, you know, the creation around us. And in, in terms of the four worlds, this second world, the world of cups, the world of water, is a world where we have, I'm trying to remember exactly how to put it. It's sort of like the, the first world is the idea to have an impulse, <laughs> you know, the, the motion towards an impulse, but not the impulse itself. And this world, the world of love, the world of creation, the world of water and cups is, is the world where that starts to take form. Whereas the world of swords is the blueprint for the actual thing itself, which we're going to get in the final world, the world of discs. Yeah, it's where the the thing is dreamed up. Yeah, yeah, sort of like, yeah, like the idea of bird, right? (laughs) You know, something that has these qualities, but without real, really filling it in or having specifics. Okay. Um, All right, so going over the um, historical... Uh, some of the historical meanings of this card. Uh, he was associated with, he's the, the king of hearts is generally associated with Charlemagne, you know, the first Holy Roman emperor who was formerly the king of the Franks. And he is, uh, of course, uh, if you play poker or any other card games religiously, you will know that he's also known as the Suicide King, because he's the playing card who appears to be holding his sword in such a way that it would go straight through his head. That is supposed to be a sort of a misprint over the years. It used to be a battle axe he was holding, but over the years, the axe part of it sort of <laughs> disappeared. And now he looks like he's holding this um, sword that's going straight through his head. He's also the only king who has no mustache. Uh, he is the only king who, when you, you know, when on a playing card, you have both sides, right? Uh, the, the upside down and the right side up who shows four hands. Um, <laughs> he's also the only king who is uh, associated historically with an actual emperor. So the others are all associated with other kinds of historical figures or kings, but not emperors. And I think what is special about Charlemagne and why, why he's associated with this suit is because he wasn't just a military figure. He wasn't just a, he wasn't just a conqueror. He was a person who was associated with the church, the Holy Roman Empire. He was a person who was considered a great supporter of the spirit 
the spiritual leader of the realm, not just the political leader of the realm. He was also um, supposed to be very supportive of education. So, and I think that's something that we see going back with this deck. Wands are associated with the peasant agricultural class, but cups are associated with the clergy, you know, with matters of the heart, with matters of the spirit and matters of the soul. So he was also later sort of co-opted as the sort of model of chivalry. So him and his paladin knights were considered, you know, the model for, for that, that ideal of chivalry where the knights mission in life is not merely to be a soldier, but to be a protector of the weak and the powerless. So that's, you know, some of that where that mythology comes from. There's also that mm -hmm. idea with chivalry of some sort of renunciation quality to it sometimes. Yes, absolutely. Renunciation of the flesh or the pleasures of the flesh. Yeah. Right. In, in the service of some sort of redemption. Right. So that whatever material attainments you gain in this world are really secondary to the ultimate goal of, you know, unification with God or spirit. And interestingly, so in Ateya, this card, the King of Cups, uh, represents a blonde man, which is actually true for cups in general, they often associate them with blondes, but uh, which is one of those things that I think is just kind of ridiculous. But you know, especially if you come, if your family origin is from a place where everybody has the same color hair and eyes. But, um, but, uh, anyway, so blonde man or a, a man, the French, the French term is an homme en place. And I looked this up and that just means a man in place is a man in like an official capacity, someone who's attained some power in a bureaucracy kind of a thing. Uh, it can also represent the great priest, it says. So, you know, member of the clergy class. It indicates a superior will. Um, and also it can have that. It can be someone who is, uh, who appears to be doing good things, but isn't. So like a hypocrite, you know, someone who is, seems to be doing kindly things to you, but is not sort of in a, in a reverse position. That can be the case. And I think that has to do with the doubleness of this card. Yeah. You know, the projective Pisces, qualities. The, the, the dual, the dual nature of Pisces. Right. The slipperiness. There is a slipperiness to really kind of both male cards of the cup suit. I've always found, you know, um, and it isn't so much with this one. It's not a deceitful nature so much as just being sort of lost in the glamour of the moment. Yeah, I mean, just the idea that spiritual leaders are often unmasked as frauds because they can't handle all of the virtue and, uh, and, uh, and saintliness that's being projected onto them by their followers. So, uh, so that's something that I kind of pick up from, from the historical meanings. Shall we, shall we start trying to go into the individual cards? Sure. Okay. So, Rider Waite Smith. Yeah, maybe here's where we can just mention a little bit about. Yeah. If you're pulling out cards from your deck at home, you may want to pull out both the King of Cups and the Knight of Cups, just because visually speaking, the Knight of Cups of Rider Waite Smith is more visually comparative to the Thoth card and Tabula Mundi card than. Mm -hmm. One thing I was thinking about, so if you look at the way Waits 
courts are set up versus Crowley's courts are set up. I do have a distinct preference for the Thoth system just because if you look at Waits mail cards, only one is really active. You've got, if you start with the king, you've got one that's static, and then you've got a queen who's also static. They're both on thrones. They're not in motion. And then you have a knight who's in motion, um, and then you have a princess who's usually standing still. So right. you have three static and only one active cards. Where in the Thoth system, you have two active and two passive. So you have the knight who's in motion, you have the queen who's static, then you have the prince who is both in motion and static. He's on the chariot, he's he's enthroned, but he's in motion. So he's kind of like a combination of the two in, a, in an ordered sort of way. And then you have the princess who's said to be a combination, but in a chaotic or random sort of way. <laughs> Plus, because she's standing on the ground, she may not have the velocity of somebody on right. a horse or a right. car, she's, but she could go in any direction. She could go anywhere. Yeah, she's got yeah. that chaos element, and she's yeah. said to be inertia in motion or something like that. That yeah. makes no, totally no sense. So I like that that motion, static, ordered combo, random combo kind of describes the divine name unfolding much better than weights, static, static, motion, Static, you know what yeah, I mean, and it, I think you know the, it tells a better story. The way me. that the kings in wait are seated on thrones is one reason why a lot of people associate them with Thoth princes, and it's a very good reason. It's yeah. a, you know, there's as far as like the rationale for whether king should go with uh, Thoth knight or king should go with Thoth prince. It's almost you know fifty fifty for me. You could really argue either way, but. We just went with, you know. Yeah. There's a, because I think yeah. it has a lot to do with the way weight places the the king as the highest of the hierarchy. He's, he seems like he's more into the the hierarchy of king. Yeah. Overnight. Right. Whereas Crowley's more about the expression of active, mm -hmm. you know, of that binary, of, of that yeah. yod force being an active thing mm -hmm. of a knight, and uh, and gender in parentheses, not yeah, you know, not actual like sexual gender exactly, but those sort of like qualities, uh, qualities of male versus female and active as versus passive in the abstract. So yeah, so it's important to recognize if you struggle with uh, Rider Waite Smith courts that. There's more to it than meets the eye and that, you know, you can borrow from other systems to help expand and enrich those meanings to make it a little bit more satisfying. Because I think that's one of the reason people have trouble with Waitsmith courts. They're just not very balanced or they don't give you a lot to work with. Yeah. Imaginally. And also there's no denying that, you know, looking at men on horseback, <laughs> you know, that, that wait nights just resemble uh, Thoth knights in that way. Right. So looking at the weight king of cups, we have a figure who is seated in a throne in the middle of the waves. So he's yeah, it's almost like he's his throne floats, even though it looks like a slab of stone. Yes, yes, it's a weird thing elementally, but you know you'd almost expect it to be earth of air or uh, sorry, earth of water because it's stone like that, or air of water because he's in the air. But I guess this is the way that gets him closest to the sun. So fire of water in that way. 
weird he does have fire of water colors. He's got the fiery, fiery colored cape and uh, mantle and crown, where, but over a blue watery robe. And if you actually look at the Rider Waite Seven of Swords, Eight of Cups, and Nine of Cups, there's a real harmony of color with this particular card with the King of Cups. Real primary colors, red, blue, yellow. Um, and he also has these weird scaly feet, which I mm. always love because I feel like it, it draws attention to that Pisces quality, the feet. The feet the, yeah, Pisces you know, ruling the feet. My feet are actually fish. <laughs> fish feet. Fish feet, you know. Um, I like the little fishy that's on the left there. It's yeah. like just peeking out. It kind of looks like he's smiling. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There has to be the a leaping fish. Leaping fish. Right. And I've heard that described as a dolphin, but as usual, it's sort of like, you know, people calling fish and dolphins by the same name for whatever reason. Um, and then there's a ship in the background, which I think is always interesting. Yeah, because a ship, it, it always reminds me similarly of the idea of a quest you know the the great journey when you when you see an image of a ship you can sometimes think of you know sailing the seas of the mind or even the journey of death or you mm -hmm. know like look a golden wing ship is passing my way and it didn't yeah. have to stop it just kept on going <laughs> now this king is was historically always considered a really older guy, a mature guy. Uh, not all the kings are thought of that way, but because he has the vision to look really far, you know, and that's a, that's a quality of Pisces. Yeah. It's a Jupiterian quality, the willingness the to go far traveling in the mind or in physical life, I think are, are, are real qualities of that card. For example, we see the, another card we see the ship on in, uh, in Rider Waite Smith is the two, of Pentacles, which is a Jupiter and Capricorn card where the ship shows that willingness to go far, uh, to explore the frontiers of, of where, whatever adventure you're on. You know, I didn't look it up. He's got, he's got a scepter and he's got a cup and the scepter looks like, it looks like a golden dawn scepter to me. It does. Uh, one of the scepters of the adepts. Uh, maybe like the one from the three of wands, maybe. That, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I haven't seen any reference to why uh, she chose to give him that particular scepter. So, and he's got a uh, necklace with a fish on it. Oh yeah, so there are. Um, we have fish references on the you know the actual fish on the left of the card, the fishy feet and the fishy necklace. And you know I don't really read much into that beyond what we you know the fact that it's Pisces. However, fish is a sacrificial totem. Yeah. Rider weight in particular uses the fish in pretty much all of the cards. I think there's a fish in every one of the water courts. In the way that there's a salamander in yeah. all of the wands courts. Yeah. yeah, this is the way that we say this is a this is a cup card. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at again, looking at the scepter, look how the scepter is. The design of it is echoed in the throne beneath. Yeah, that's interesting. It's curious, and it's kind of you know that could be a water triangle. In a way. Oh, wait, no, no that's would, not. That's that a, fire a fire triangle. Well, it could be a fire, fire triangle. Yeah, because it's fire of water. Yeah. And I think the other thing about the the fish is that the the way the fish inhabits the water is a metaphor for the way that we inhabit spirit. You know, we can think of it as being present all around us, that we live and breathe it without even realizing it. And I think that's the spiritual message of Pisces. I feel like I should have done a study of the different king crowns, but I didn't. Yeah, it's a funny looking It's a crown. funny one, isn't it? It reminds me a little bit, you know, the red 
part of the crown reminds me of a clerical cap, the cap of the cardinals, I think. It's got ear flaps. Oh, yeah. Huh. wonder if that ear flap is symbolic of, you know, tuning out the material world to tune into the inner world. Yeah. Perhaps. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. And also maybe it's a way of sort of reference. It's blue. It's referencing water. I mean, in the if you look at the King of Wands crown, that's a, a crown that that is supposed to sort of indicate flame, right? It's got mm. the the points of the crown look like but flame. His, the Knight of Cups, King of Cups crown does mm-hmm. have those wavy lines on the band of it that are suggestive of waves. It does. Yeah, but they, you're right that they, they there does seem to be some sort of some sort of stylized wave on the crown. The uh the King of Swords, I just looked at it. If you look real close, you can see on his crown that he's got like babies on it. Mhm. Cherubs. Yep. Which is that's a Gemini thing. It's right. A Gemini symbol. Twins type thing. And then I'm just going to look at the King of discs here he has sort of a what could be a laurel wreath or something like that and some flowers yep it does look like yeah greenery around the band of his head yeah so you can see that there's an attempt in each of these sort of uh to tie it elementally to the yeah to the suit yeah and you know that's interesting that (laughs) that the king of swords has a you know has a human face on it because it's kind of redundant you know wearing a face on your face (laughs) but but it has two-faced yeah two-faced and it gemini faced and it does really make you think of the sort of intellectualization of that Mm. that card anyway okay so that's kind of interesting and the other thing that we should probably mention is that there's also you know depending on whether you associate the king of cups with the prince of cups or the knight of cups in Thoth, that also affects the elemental association. So there is definitely an argument for calling him heir of water, just something to think about. It's almost as if the Rider Waite king is on an island. Yeah. He's surrounded on all sides by water, but he's not in the water. No, you know, no part of him is touching the water. Yeah, and it's true, you know, it's also the, it's also true of the knight that he's not touching the water either, whereas the queen of cups is basically, you know, she's, her dress is sort of merging with the water. I'm just trying to, and I think the page of cups is also not touching the water, he's just in front of it, or she. And he's got a weird shaped throne too. It is. <laughs> sort of looks like a, an armchair that got fossilized. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> okay, so, um, should we move on to Thoth? Sure. There's a ton yeah. going on in Thoth. It's a beautiful card. Yeah. I love the uh, Art Deco vibe. Mm-hmm. Lady Frida got those wings, you know, it, it looks almost as if it's a metallic sculpture from the Deco period. It does. Yeah. And it really dominates the card and sort of echoes the wave shapes in it. So the the wings, these amazing wings that he has, uh, I think Crowley, and the, as well as what the horse is doing, sort of leaping over the waves, is meant to show how active, yeah. you know, this fiery aspect of water is. Yeah, there's an alchemical story in this card as well, because it's got the peacock in that, that bottom wave that's kind of like yes. stylized and swooping up, has a, a faint but discernible peacock within and... and as we know, the peacock is a 
symbol for the alchemical transformation. Um, it's the stage that follows the blackening stage. Then there's the iridescent colors. And then comes the uh, whitening phase, which is symbolized in the white horse and the white wings and Yes, that uh, peacock's tail stage, the cauda pavonis, is supposed to be a good sign that what you're doing is working. Yeah. Yeah, when you see all the colors of the rainbow. I think of it as sort of, you know, not having ever done any practical alchemy, <laughs> who has? Yeah. But I think of it as like that sort of a greasy sheen, you yeah, know? Yeah, that oily, the iridescent oily sheen. sheen. Yeah. Yeah, I've read that it's symbolic of the transcendental experience that that phase between the blackening and the whitening in between there's that transcendence that makes sense and the peacock's kind of interesting it was sacred to hera mm-hmm. which brings in jupiter again the ruler of pisces hera being his long suffering <laughs> spouse um and uh the peacock was actually a gift from Pan to Hera, and then it became cherished by Hera. He's also across cultures, the, you know, uh, more broadly, the peacock is a solar symbol, which is interesting because fire and water. Fire right? and water, yeah. Mm-hmm. The eyes, the eyes, the iridescence. Um, it's associated with both immortality, but also the short lived nature of things. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a contradiction, but right. like Pisces itself. Right. The wholeness of uh, of everything because of every color that it has. Yeah, but the it's totality of all colors, but, but right. that phase doesn't last long. Just like we saw in the Ten of Cups, uh, Rainbow of Pisces. Yep. The, mm-hmm. the shape of the tail, the way it opens up like a fan is said to be like the solar wheel. So again, that brings right. in fire and water. Right. And there was something else. And we're both we're both uh, drawing on the dictionary of symbols for this because it's just so good. There's a tradition of sacrificing the peacock in a prayer for rain. So that also to me really ties in with the sort of swift, passionate attack of the rain Mm -hmm. that goes with this. There's also a cool story about the uh, Hindu god Skanda who rides a peacock. Yeah. And the peacock had the power to destroy serpents which water mm-hmm. to destroy venom and poisons and transmute them into a substance, a beverage of immortality that was right. shown with that iridescence. Yeah. There is a long sort of tradition of peacock versus serpent, which is interesting when you think about, you know, the fact that serpent is a form of Scorpio, which will be, you know, so there's like a father, son, prince, knight tension yep. in there. Yep. Yeah. Edible thing. And something else that Crowley says is there is here also some reference to the phenomena of fluorescence. So I looked up what's going on in fluorescence a little bit and the way it's basically where a substance, so it absorbs light or radiation, but then emits it at a longer, you know, slower wavelength. Like so my it's t-shirt. visible. Oh, you have a fluorescent? Oh, this, neat. This glows in the dark. So ah. it charges with the sun. <laughs> Mel's got a super cool uh, Thelema Agape uh, Hot t-shirt on. logo. <laughs> Where'd you get that from? Studio Etsy. Oh, Etsy. Uh, It's, uh, if anyone is interested, it is the uh, not-for-profit industries and profit spelled profit. (laughs) P-R-O-P-H-E-T. That's appropriate. I love this shirt, yeah. But it glows in the dark, so... That is There's great. fluorescence for you. There you go. So it's it's about taking... Have you ever know, seen it on the beach? 
uh, seeing fluorescence on the beach? No. Oh, and when I was on the West Coast, there was this stuff that would wash up on the beach and the Mm -hmm. sand would would glow. Wow, like bioluminescence? Yes, it was some kind of algae, I think. So metaphorically, that makes me think of, you know, the fiery absorption of energy, you know, and then the ability to relay it or, you know, give it to the rest of the world in some kind of broader spiritual message is, is also sort of an aspect of a way to translate that fluorescence into abstract terms. Looking at the uh, crab coming from his cup. Yeah. In the Thoth deck, that really looks very solar. There's the gold cup and the gold crab with these rays coming out of it. And maybe that's just a fire, a fire water thing, the solar. And it also reminds me of alchemical gold because we were talking about, you know, the whole process of alchemy is supposed to be the end result of transmuting base things to gold, whether it's actual gold or spiritual gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And also because, you know, in Thoth, so many times we look for the sun in the upper right or upper left corner, somewhere like that. But you can also think of it as like, okay, so the night is existing in the sphere of Chakma. Maybe he's reaching up towards the light of Keter in that corner, Mm. you know, in one way or another. Right. He's definitely like holding the cup up as almost like a trophy. And before I knew much about, you know, the astrological associations of the card, I always used to think this was cancer because the crab was on there. But I think, you know, with all the cards in practice, as I've said before, it often turns out to be the case that it's just somebody in a water sign. It's not always so specific who's who. And when you think about the crab, too, you think about its sideways motion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't approach straight on. Mm -hmm. It kind of moves from side to side to get to where it's going. And it makes me think of, you know, this card as being a divine quest, but it's not always a straight path. Right. And there's something about that sideways motion being the way to travel that speaks a little about doing things without lust of result. Yes. You know, not coming at it straight on. Yes. Yes. Or possibly the... Because the only way you can have union with the divine is perhaps not in a straight, linear fashion. Now, I don't know that Curly talks about the geomancy specifically in his text. I think he mentions... Lytitia? Yes. Yeah. So So Jupiter and Pisces. All right. Yeah. Because Lytitia, we talked about in the Nine of Cups and also in the Ten of Cups, is that figure of the upside-down U, the rainbow, uh, which is associated specifically with Pisces. As they say, it's ruled right. outwardly it's by water and inwardly by fire. I, I tried to – I went down the wormhole last night trying to figure out about uh, outer rulership and inner rulership in geomancy, and uh, it's a mess. Yeah, so it, it really don't is. do it. <laughs> yeah, you'll get very confused because there are several different schools of thought, right. and you're going to find conflicting information. I was hoping that it was going to be like you could tell just by looking at the figure, and you can't. It's like just somebody's idea. Yeah. So, like so much. <laughs> but the meaning of that figure is overall very fortunate. Joy, delight, and health. Yeah. Which what more could you ask for? Then, you know, that's the ultimate goal is happiness. Right. Oh yeah, and eaching. So, um, this is interesting. So this is this is something that Crowley usually goes into some detail with with his court cards. But the the hexagram that is associated with this card is um called 
Gui Mei, which uh, hexagram 54. And that's a really interesting one because the Gui part of it is kind of means the eldest son and the Mei part of it kind of means the youngest daughter. So there's like a, a sort of... um. Fire Co- water? Fire water thing. And also sort of like that reminds us of the whole awakening the eld uh, princess wakes up the night kind of story that we have throughout the Golden Dawn's idea of the court cards. But also um, there's a tradition, I guess, this dates from, you know, a culture where you would have arranged marriages and they were... Right, um, isn't it called marrying maiden? The marrying times? maiden, right. And so... So this, this is about the young woman going into the new household. And in fact, these were, um, polygamous households. So sometimes it's like the younger sister who joins her older sister and has to, you know, go in as the second wife, which sounds like a really sucky deal. But, you know, concerned. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, totally. But, but I think the sort of like the idealized Confucian way of looking at it is it's this sort of like model of obedience, but also the renewal of the household by someone who is young and healthy and has a lot to offer as slave labor. (laughs) The other uh, name I read for this one was propriety. Oh, interesting. I thought was interesting in terms of um, this court. And so each... Another thing I was looking into is that each of these hexagrams has two other ones associated with it. Right. The the hidden influence and the underlying cause. So the hidden influence for this one was hexagram 63, which was renew, which speaks to that what you just said about, you know, the new, the younger maiden coming in and renewing. And uh, the underlying cause was 53, which was to flower. And, mm-hmm. and about flowering. And, and so I thought that was kind of interesting in, in terms of uh, this guy. And it said, you know, it also said something about a meaning for this hexagram as being to follow rather than lead. Hmm. And I thought that was interesting because I think of this night as being on some kind of holy quest. And so he's not leading, he's following the object of desire. Right. The object of happiness or the Holy Grail. Right. The way these hexagrams are composed, just to remind everybody, is that the Golden Dawn basically took four trigrams, elemental trigrams, and put them together. So uh, this one is the trigram for um, swamp or lake. Uh, and that's the lower trigram, I believe. Yeah. And that will be repeated throughout the entire court cycle. And then the upper one is Jen, which is... Um, which is thunder, which we saw all throughout the wands. Which is like courts. fire. In a right. Sense. <laughs> which is like fire. Exactly. It's a, it, they're kind of weird choices, but nevertheless, they were at least consistent with them throughout the court. So you can build your own uh, court hexagram knowing what the rules are quite easily. I was uh, kind of struck by what Crowley had to say about this guy. I think he accused him of being shallow waters. <laughs> right. Right. I, I get the feeling that Crowley didn't much care for this guy. Yeah. So Tabula Mundi, we can um, see the peacock again uh, as the court crest. And I that comes from the book Tea Description, which I guess this is as good a point to read mm-hmm. as any. Mm-hmm. A beautiful, winged, youthful warrior with flying hair, 
riding upon a white horse, not winged. <laughs> his general equipment resembles that of the Knight of Wands, but upon his helmet, cuirass, and buskins is a peacock with opened wings. He holds a cup in his hand, bearing the sigil of his scale, Yod. From it issues a crab. Beneath his horse's feet is the sea. Yeah, that was the book T description, and the card follows that pretty faithfully. Uh, the peacock with open wings, the youthful warrior on a white steed. The warrior is winged, the steed is not. <laughs> um, and he's uh, got beneath the horse's feet waves of the sea. Um, one of the things that comes from one of the descriptions in book M, Liber Mundi, there's a page that has a list of the Golden Dawn. They had these short, pithy phrases for each of the zodiacal signs describing some manifestation of the element. So for the water signs, it will describe some type of water for each sign. For the air signs, some type of cloud formation usually. And for the um, fire signs, different kinds of flames and so on. Mm -hmm. So the description for Pisces in that list says, breaking waves of the sea, a force avenging. I like those phrases because even though they're sort of cryptic and you're not quite sure what they're trying to say, if you reflect on it, you can get an emotional hit or something yeah. over it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like those. This this night he has the peacock's feathers on his crown and on or helmet, I guess you'd call it, and on the wings of his horse and, I mean, the wings that he wears. Mm -hmm. And the horse's armor has symbols from the three decans. So the symbols from the cards, the seven of swords, futility as the, the kneeling camel overburdened by his pack, kind of giving up. Mm -hmm. He's got the um, ship's figurehead from the eight of cups indolence shipwreck and the wish fingers holding the bigger half of the wishbone from the nine of cups happiness. So, when you see this, these things, they bring to mind that he's on this type of quest. He has a goal in mind and that he has to keep his will strong and not become indolent or, mm -hmm. um, you know, have loss of soul, loss of heart, loss of will associated with futility. And it's interesting too. So he's got the first two decans of Pisces. But what's the Deccan he doesn't have? He doesn't have the, the Ten of Cups, mm, satiety. Right. So it's almost as if the way the grail recedes into the distance and you never quite catch up to it kind of thing. There, there yeah. isn't that satiety. It doesn't go over and cross over into that. It stays with the the pure happiness. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that the Ten of Cups goes with his opposite number, the Queen of Wands. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. That's yeah. kind of an inter interesting thing. What is going on? So I'm looking at the crest at the top. I see the peacock. I see the peacock's tail, but the reddish wings up at the top, is that part that, of, those the are part of the peacock's well? wings? Oh, His wings are outspread. He's like in, fl I in flight. See. I see. It's I see. not a position yeah. you mm -hmm. often see peacocks depicted in because mm -hmm. the, the, their focus is always on the glory of the outspread tail. Right. But if you look up what a peacock looks like when it's flying and its wings are outspread, that's, mm -hmm. that's what oh, they look like. That's cool. So he's heading off in the other direction. Yeah. 
There's something about this card, too, that reminds me of uh, Parsifal, you know, his trials and tribulations. <laughs> yes. We talked about Parsifal in the Eight of Cups episode because of the Garden of Kundry, which is part of that story. And I think, you know, it makes sense as well as with the sort of romance of Charlemagne that we also talked about this ideal of chivalry and the spiritual quest of the, uh, of the knight, not just the military or political quest of the knight. What about the color? Oh, yeah. I, I didn't, um, I didn't think about the color. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure it's a blue, but I can't remember the exact blue. What am I thinking? The court cards don't have those same color scales as the rest of the deck. They go with elemental colors. Right. So obviously the colors we see are elemental colors of water, mostly blues and some greens mm -hmm. with some white, like the white capped. And there's waves. a, there's a, there's a matching quality throughout the courts. Yeah. So mm -hmm. all of the cups courts will have shades of blues mm -hmm. mainly. Mm -hmm. Blues and greens. One thing we haven't talked about yet that I think is interesting, the star groups of this general area of the Zodiac. So constellation Pegasus is said to be in this area, which is really interesting with all the white horse yeah. symbolism going white on wings. and white wings. And yeah. although the horse was said not to be winged. True. That in that section of the Zodiac, there's a, a the Pegasus. Um, and it's Pegasus as a constellation, only the front half of his body is shown. So it's like as if he's coming out of the, the water. So I don't know if everybody knows the story of Pegasus, but Pegasus was born from Medusa's head when Perseus lopped off Medusa's head, the, the, the blood flowed into the sea and mixed with sea foam and Pegasus sprung up from that. It's also said that Poseidon seduced Medusa when he was in the form of a horse. <laughs> okay. All right. Then. All right. What's really neat about Pegasus is that he's associated with sacred inspiring waters, the Hippocrene Springs, the springs of the Muses. So where Pegasus struck his hooves, springs would come up, and they were usually sacred springs that would inspire people to poetry and works of the arts. Oh, that's really so nice. It, it really fits in with with this uh, knight as being an artistic, creative individual, mm -hmm. usually gifted with poetic, you know, abilities. Speaking abilities. Um, yeah, definitely. There's something definitely associated with the ability to inspire through poetry, a bard-like quality with him. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the fixed stars, the stars that are within the constellation, we have um, Alpharats, which is the star that was the navel of the horse. So like I said, the horse is seen only in his top half, and the navel star of the horse is also Andromeda's neck or head, which is interesting because if you then bring in the, the story of Andromeda and Perseus is there as well, yeah. Perseus rescues Andromeda from, she's chained to the rock and the sea monster Cetus is going to devour her and he comes flying in. He's got the head of Medusa or whatever and, and uh, saves her life and wins her hand in marriage, but it speaks a little bit to me about the idea of this knight being on, again, a quest, some sort of redemptive 
quest. In this case, he's redeeming the maiden from her her mm-hmm. fate. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, it's a it's definitely a chivalric type. Yeah, quest. exactly. Yeah. So it kind of yeah. kind of fits. Mm-hmm. And then the other um, star, the alpha star, is called Markab, which means the saddle, mm-hmm. and. It reminds me of the story of Bellerophon, right. who rode Pegasus. He somehow befriended Pegasus and did all these great things. Um, he was given all these tests and trials, and he, th- with Pegasus's help, he was able to do this and do that and overcome everything. But he got a little too full of himself, and he said, because he's done all these great things, he wanted to become a god, and he wanted Zeus oh. to make him a god. Oh. And he ordered Pegasus to fly him up to Mount Olympus so that he could demand godhood from Jupiter or Zeus. Not (laughs) Not a a good good idea. idea. (laughs) Yeah, so Zeus uh, either struck him down with a thunderbolt. There's two things. Some say Zeus sent a gadfly to sting Pegasus to throw him off, and others say that he threw thunderbolts. Sometimes Pegasus was said to carry Zeus's thunderbolts. But anyway, Bellerophon, because of he was being so stuck up, he got struck blind. He wasn't killed, but he was thrown from Pegasus' back, landed down to Earth hard, and was blind after that. The meaning of that fixed star often in astrological terms is good fortune subject to disgrace. Mm-hmm. So he had all this huge run of good fortune, but he blew it <laughs> right. by, by trying to be a god. Then Losing his way. There's one more interesting star in the beta star of Pegasus, which is Sheet which is an extraordinarily malevolent, evil influence star. But it's also associated with creativity and intellect mm-hmm. as a good side. Tortured artist type star. Yeah, yeah something <laughs> like that. So all of those, all of those, I think, kind of fit pretty well with yeah. the uh, mythologies, the, the stories of this night. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Yeah, that seems incredibly with the narratives that we've touched on. So how do you find that this night shows up for you, this Niter King? When I see this guy show up, it's usually a message to keep sight of your goal or for the person to keep sight of their goal while understanding that all things are transient, you know, the transitory nature of all things. But don't let that dissuade you from having this goal and pursuing it. Um, usually when I see this card, it is about some sort of quest or some sort of divine union as a goal. Are you thinking of that in sort of an artistic concept? Uh, so, it, for myself? Context. Often, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. For others, yeah. it could be whatever their, mm-hmm. their particular holy grail is. Yeah. Well, I don't get this card, relatively speaking, I don't get it a ton, but I don't do very well with it. I was sort of looking through the journaling for this and it's me getting sick and other people getting sick. <laughs> I oh. think it's like the respiratory sort of like the, the flooding of the sinuses type sort of thing. Um, just cold after cold after cold. But there are also some interesting sort of synchronicities that I found, for example, like in terms of world events, like I got it the day that uh, same-sex marriage was legalized. So I actually got the king of cups and like the king of swords or you know something like that right yep. you know so that was kind of neat i got it 
the day of the airport protests over the Muslim ban. And I think that, you know, it is a card of sort of mass movements in service of whatever ideal seems to grip the person's imagination at the time. And then I've just gotten it for like really rainy days. (laughs) Swift, passionate attacks of rain. I've also seen it for like spiritual grapples. You know, when you're looking for spiritual advice, some sort of healing or... You're, you're, you're seeking something or a mentor to a spiritual mentor. Right. Someone to share that kind of, um, seeking and questing with you or to act as a guiding figure. And I think there can be themes of renunciation as well mm-hmm. to focus on the spiritual rather than the material. Right. To believe in your, in your goal. That makes sense. Yeah. I have, uh, also a note here that. There was a time when I got it and it was just like I had been really struggling with a whole bunch of different things and I just felt a real need to go back to meditating. And that seemed appropriate for this card. All right. Um, shall we sum it up? Okay. <laughs> so uh, we talked about the Knight of Cups as, of course, as fire of water and what that means. His counterpart in the Queen of Wands is water of fire. Talked about uh, the final decan of Aquarius and the first two decans of Pisces. We talked about the will to dream, the kings as spirit, Pisces motto, I believe. Right. And the relationship with the fishy feet. (laughs) Oh, we talked a lot about peacocks and rainbows. Yep. Rain springs, active waters, shallow waters, swift and violent, but not lasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire and uh, chivalry and spiritual quests. Hippocrene Springs, the muse's gift of poetry. Uh, glamour and futility, indolence and happiness. To follow rather than lead, as in following your holy grail. The eldest son and the youngest daughter, or the marrying maiden. Bellerophon, and good fortune still subject to disgrace. The spiritual leader or guru who can be led astray. The gifts of the arts and of healing. The geomantic figure, Lytitia, or happiness. And the transitory nature of all things. Yeah. Nature of fluorescence. And the suicide king. The art of chivalry. Uh, The dissolving of boundaries, which is a kind of soft power. Didn't really talk about it, but I also associate this with kind of diplomacy. Mm, yeah. The, on the world stage. Yep. Yeah. The peacock colors of totality. Cauda pavonis and alchemy. And transmuting serpent's venom into the beverage of immortality. All right. <laughs> That's a good place to end, I think. I could use some beverage of immortality right now. No kidding. <laughs> so thank you for exploring the spiritual adventures of the knight or king of cups with us and stay tuned next time for the queen of cups one of your favorites and that's our show for today you can find us as always at our online home www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse but there are also a number of other places you can find me and mel on the internet all of mel's books and decks can be found at www.tarocart.com 
rosettatarot.com. So that's your first stop if you want to find anything related to the Rosetta Tarot or the Tabula Mundi Tarot. That's also where you'll find the adorable new pocket-sized decks as well as signed and matted prints of her artwork. As for me, my book, Tarot Correspondences, Ancient Secrets for Everyday Readers, is coming out from Llewellyn and is available for pre-order online at Amazon Book Depository and more. I also have a shop on Etsy where I sell the one and only trademarked Arcana case in lavish silks, brocades, and esoteric prints, as well as my Zodiac perfumes. Perfumes for the next month's sun signs are always on sale at the year's lowest price. All of that is at www.etsy.com slash tarotista. And if you'd like your very own Fortune's Wheelhouse t-shirt or tote bag or mug, we have those too. You can find them at our Redbubble shop. The address for that is redbubble.com slash people slash wheelhouse 93 slash shop. Go on, get yourself something. You know you deserve it. Happy shopping to all you heroes of the astral plane. We so appreciate your support.